Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to this special Best of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Welcome, friend. I am Carmen LaBurge. You are listening to a special episode of Mornings with Carmen, where I'm sharing some of my favorite conversations from the year. So I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books in order to arrive every day informed and ready to talk with authors and bring the most salient points of their books forward into our conversation. And so when I got Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Um, I wondered if possibly I'd bitten off more than I could chew. It is a meaty read. But I believed that um, it's so accurate in terms of its assessment of the days in which we live and its explanation of how we got here and maybe the steps that we might take um, ahead that I thought, you know what, Um, I'm going to grab my thesaurus. I'm going to take a lot of notes. I'm going to chew and chew and chew. And then I'm going to have a conversation with the author and see if we can distill down the salient points um, for the rest of us. So grab a notebook if you're not driving, and let's explore together the relevance of expressive individualism, what does that even mean, and how Christians are called to live in the midst of the sexual revolution. That conversation with Dr. Carl Truman, straight ahead. introduction, uh, Dr. Carl Truman is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Um, and I think I'm going to stop there so that he and I have as much time as possible to talk about his newest contribution to the conversation about how we got here. The book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Uh, Carl, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, you make me want to go back to school. <laughs> reading this book, reading this book, like I want to, I just want to pack up and I want to come to Grove City and I just want to take a class because, or, or not just a class, I want to immerse myself because um, this is this is like a textbook for understanding um, history for the last two and a half, three centuries. And it actually, like, lays it out in a way that helps me understand the world I live in today. And I can't imagine a better exercise of of a historical look back, even though I recognize it's not comprehensive. You say that a bunch of times. Um, But it is substantial, and it's understandable. So thank you. Well, thanks for saying that. It's very encouraging. I did have to look up some words, which um, just just demonstrates the the paltry nature of of my education. Let's start with this. Um, what, what it feels like you're doing, and this is what you describe, you're really answering a question, when does a particular sentence become plausible? So 
even if I, as a Christian who understands that truth is that which aligns with reality, and I understand there are real barriers to a a person who is biologically uh, male becoming biologically female, I still understand a particular sentence as plausible when someone says, uh, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Your grandfather would have laughed at that sentence. That's how you start this out. So talk about helping us understand when a particular sentence becomes plausible. Yeah, that that is the key sentence in the book uh, in many ways, and the book was designed to try to explain that. Of course, that's, I think, one of the things that Christians have been struggling with, certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, is the speed of the sexual revolution, of which transgenderism is the latest and perhaps most extreme example. And I think one of the things we need to do is to understand that the sexual revolution, it, it doesn't emerge out of nowhere. It's it, The foundations of it are really laid over over many centuries. And we need to understand the sexual revolution as a fundamental transformation of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be a self. So the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, it is only plausible when a whole host of other things have already been accepted by society. Supremely, the idea that my inner desires, what I think about myself internally, my psychology, if you like, is absolutely determinative of who I am. And it's the story of, of that sort of shift that I try to trace in the book. When we... um if I were just to start a conversation, you know, having met you on the street for the very first time, and, and I had asked you a question, who are you? The way we answer that question today is fundamentally different than a person would have answered it um, in history. So talk about the question, who are you, in terms of the self becoming something comprehensible. Yeah, well, uh, I mean... Hopefully most, if not all, of your listeners are familiar with the Bible. And uh, and if you look in the Bible, characters are often introduced as the son of. Uh, David, the son of Jesse. When you think about that sentence, what that means is that the most important thing about David when you first meet him is who his father is. It's something external to himself. He's located in a, a broader, already established framework that is greater than him and gives him his identity. As a Christian, we might extrapolate that even further and say, you know, who am I? Well, I'm one made in the image of God. I'm not the center of the universe. I am who I am because I'm connected to something much greater. Today, quite often, when we uh, talk about identities, we will talk about that which is particular to me. Uh, if you met uh, somebody from the LGBTQ movement and said to them, uh, you know, who are you? They might say, well, I'm, I'm a gay man. Well, what do they mean by that? They're really saying there that my desires are the most important thing about me. It's not some location in wider society or the wider culture. It's my inner desires determine who I am. And that's the kind of the key shift that takes place. And I think it's, it really starts or really starts to accelerate uh, in the 18th century with the uh, Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and then the great romantics of the late 18th, early 19th century, who place an emphasis upon, upon the internal. No longer am I Carl, son of John, comes from Gloucestershire in the United Kingdom. I'm Carl who has this set of desires or this set of personal ambitions or feelings that really constitute who I am. 
All right, I am talking with Carl Truman, um, and we could talk about um, where his name comes from, True Man. I, I, I love that. I hope you have written about that somewhere, um, or now will, um, because I think that's, uh, that's significant. Um, and we are talking about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. More of this intellectual feast up next. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Carl Truman, we are talking about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the books we have here in studio, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, Dr. Truman, what is the social imaginary and why is it important that I understand um, the current social imaginary if I want to understand the times in which we live? Yeah, good question. I think uh, the social imaginary is is the way most people, or the way all of us to some extent, relate to the world around us. If you think about it, by and large, we don't think about the world in terms of first principles. We don't think back to the first principles that make everything uh, possible. We imagine the world to be a certain way. I have no idea how electricity works, but I know that when I flip the switch in my study, the light comes on. It's part of the way I imagine the world to be. And that applies to morality as well. Uh, we tend not to think about morals in terms of going back to first principles. We often tend to think about morals in, in that which, which intuitively appeals to us, which intuitively seems to work. And the importance of that for, for Christians today, I think, is to realize that, first of all, arguments will only get you so far when you're talking to your, to your non-Christian friends, because most of what they believe, they don't believe on the basis of an argument. They believe it on the basis of intuitions. Secondly, I think it makes us, it helps us realize how the sexual revolution has triumphed so quickly because most people don't think about sex and sexuality in terms of you know, having read great heavy books of, of sexual ethics or books of moral theory. They watch soap operas, they watch sitcoms, they watch YouTube videos. And the plots, the narratives, the appealing characters shape how we think about the purpose and function of sex, the purpose and function of identity. They, they shape our intuitions. And I think uh, it's important for Christians to realize that because, A, it helps us to know what we're up against, and, B, it should help us develop strategies for, for counteracting that. Uh, within our own communities and within within the wider community. So that feels like, um, you know, when I read all the way to the end of the book and I am um, <clears throat> I'm tempted to lament, which you which you allow me to do for a few paragraphs and then you suggest <laughs> I move on to something else. Um, um, but there is you know, I do want to tell people that at the end of the book, there is uh, there is a look forward. But the substance of the book is a look back to help us understand how we got here. Um, and it is, uh, it is an excellent um, examination of the people, the characters, the, the thinking, the literature, the poetry that moved us to the place where we are today. Um, and so th these movers and shakers are not the ones who are making the headlines. And that's, I, I think, important to, uh, to recognize. Most of us were not educated um, formally in this. So this is like your formal educate, your formal remedial education of how we got here over the last uh, two and a half centuries, three centuries. All right. So today, Dr. Truman, um, the feelings based self is always right. Society is always wrong. 
and therefore must be torn down. The self demands affirmation and recognition. And if I don't buy into that delusion, then I must be canceled. I mean, that that feels like the summary. Yes, and I think that you, you're putting your finger on on the much broader implications of the narrative that I tell there. This goes way beyond the sexual revolution. It plays into notions of religious freedom, freedom of speech, those kind of things. And I think that Christians need to grasp the, the breadth and the depth of the problem and to realize that certainly, I think, for the foreseeable future, certainly for my lifetime, Really, the the way forward for Christians at this point is to is to retrench and to start to think locally, to strengthen our local church communities. If the social imaginary is shaped by the culture in which we live, then we need to make sure that our local church culture is a strong culture that is shaping the social imaginary of our young people in an appropriate way. Because we are up against a society that has now really you know, flipped, not just abandoned. Christian thinking on the whole, but has flipped to a very oppositional position relative to Christian thinking. So I think that the solution is regrouping as a local church and strengthening local community at this point. So um, I'll, I'll disclose um, you know, some things about myself that my audience is well aware of. I, Carmen, live in a world where God is present everywhere, all the time. I walk with God. I talk with God. I understand myself as his child, an agent of his grace, an ambassador of his kingdom. You know, I'm seeking to yield moment by moment to his influence, to the active work of the Holy Spirit within me, that I might be brought into greater conformity with who Christ is. Like, I want everyone else to know God as I do through the grace that's offered in Jesus Christ. I am going to be increasingly frustrated um, in the world as you describe it. Yes, uh, uh, but I think it's not an unprecedented position for the church to be in. One of the things I do towards the end of the book is say, when you think about the church today, it's it's very similar in many ways to the the church of the second century, which was a a minor sect. If the Romans thought about it at all, they thought about it as as an immoral and seditious group, uh, and yet the church of the second century. Uh, ended up flourishing, became very strong during the third and then triumphant in, in the fourth century. So, yes, I think that you may well find your life uh, frustrating, but you and I need to remember the story ultimately isn't about us. It's the task of our generation to prepare and strengthen the church for the next generation. So we should not, I think, necessarily look for our own fulfillment uh, or for fulfillment in our own time. We should be playing the long game here and thinking about what does the church need to be in the long term in order, humanly speaking, to survive, to flourish and to thrive. So that unmasks, I mean, as soon as you say that, as soon as you suggest to me and to to all of us that, you know, what we need here is a 100 or 200 year view, you immediately then unmask the reality um, that we are all expressive individualists, because as soon as you say I, that, you know, Carmen, you need to take a two or, three, or you know, 100 or 200 year view. This is about the generations yet to come. My own expressive individualism, the reality that I'm swimming in the waters of psychological man, resist and immediately push back and say, oh, what about me? What about the meaning of my life? How's that going to, right? I mean, this, is, this yeah. is the point you're making in the book as well. Yeah. And I think 
if, if you think about medieval cathedrals, say to the students, you know, the first man who laid a stone for a medieval cathedral knew that he wasn't going to live to see the completed product, but he still thought it was worthwhile because it was bigger than him. And I think we need to think that way. And, and as depressing as it is to, to be sort of convicted by that, I do think that once we understand the way we are impacted by expressive individualism, we are better able to, to handle that within our own lives. Uh, it's a little bit like being an alcoholic, if you like. The first step is the acknowledgement that, yes, we are part of the problem. And that frees us up then, I think, to develop strategies to help compensate for that, even as we can never fully escape from it. Um, all right. So one more question, and because we're just nearly out of time and I could talk to you for hours. I just I commend this book to everyone. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman um, text the word book to eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four if you want to get in on the drawing. Um, what is anti-culture? Because I think that I want people to understand this before we go. Yeah, this is a, a difficult concept in some ways, but essentially culture throughout the ages has been the transmission of the values of one generation down to the next. That's what our cultural institutions, uh, our artists, our politicians, our, our general cultural institutions have done. We live in a position now where the elites of society are in the game of overthrowing the values of the past. So they are, in effect, an anti-culture. It's not that they are transmitting the values of the past to the present in a way that makes them helpful and useful. They see their job as tearing, tearing down those values and destroying them. And I, I would say that's really unworthy of the name culture in many ways. It's actually opposed. It's anti what culture typically does. Um, yeah, it, just so much good content here. Um, we're out of time today, but thank you so much for this contribution to the conversation. Thank you for pouring this into the lives of students at, at Grove City College. Um, just, just thank you. I hope you'll come back and talk with us again. I would love to. And, and thanks for pointing out my politically incorrect surname. I love that. <laughs> True man. I love it. All right. It's, uh, it's Dr. Carl Truman. Uh, the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We'll be right back. All right. Well, thank you again for listening to this special episode of Mornings with Carmen, where we're sharing some of our favorite conversations from the past year. Do you remember Monica Kelsey? How could we forget her? Monica is the baby box lady. Remember her now? Monica is standing on the front lines defending the innocent children, often targeted for abortion and abandonment. She's also the founder of an organization called Safe Haven Baby Boxes. It's the only safe haven organization that's really um, saving abandoned babies by these electronically monitored boxes that are installed in fire stations and at hospitals. She's also a firefighter and a medic out of Indiana, she spends her spare time saving the lives of strangers. It's really an extraordinary life tale. Monica's mission is simple, to protect all human life from conception to natural death. My conversation with Monica Kelsey, straight away. We often describe ourselves as pro-life. You guys know I describe myself as pro-life from natural conception to natural death. 
Uh, but what does that mean? What does that really mean functionally in our lives? Monica Kelsey joins us now. Her ministry is Safe Haven Baby Boxes. You're going to hear me direct you several times to the website, site, SHBB, Safe Haven Baby Boxes, SHBB.org. Monica, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, guys. How are you? Well, I am blessed to be talking with you today. Um, I am a fan. Tell people what a safe haven baby box is and why we need them. Well, you know, the safe haven law has been around for the last 20 years where a woman can walk into a fire station or a hospital and hand their uh, newborn child that they don't want or can't care for uh, to a worker there and walk away no questions asked. And in the last 20 years, we've had 4,700 babies come through our program. But when you look at how many babies are being saved versus how many babies are still being dumped in trash cans and dumpsters or left at the doors of safe haven locations, you have to ask yourself, why are we still finding 2,500 babies over the last 20 years when there's this law? And so 2,500 babies have been illegally abandoned in the last 20 years, even though we've saved 4,700 babies. And so I came up with a concept where women can get 100% anonymity. And the, you know, the, the, the law for the last 20 years, you had to hand your, your child to a person. And so what I've done is taken that step out. Uh, you don't have to hand your child to a person. You put your child in an electronically monitored box that actually calls 911 on its own. And so if you don't want to look someone in the face or you don't want to talk to someone or you're scared or whatever the situation is, this box will alert personnel. Uh, your baby is going to be safe inside. And you can walk away, no questions asked. Um, and like I said, the box calls 911 on its own. So mom really doesn't have to do anything except place her child inside and walk away. Uh, average time for babies in our boxes are right at two minutes. It's um, it's really incredible. Um, I, I had lots of questions. And so I read lots of articles and lots of um, testimonies. Um, and I read one. Um, it's 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 out of Indianapolis, and uh, the headline is "Behind the Box: A Mother's Story of Surrendering Her Newborn Out of Love." One of the things that you know I discovered in reading that is, yeah, there's this way for her to not be seen, and she talks about why she did not want to be seen. But I also mm-hmm. thought it was beautiful that she shared that she wanted to see, like so she still like watched at a distance and timed how long was it before somebody you know opened the box and got her baby and. Um, you know, and so she was assured of that working, and then she also availed herself of the um, of the counseling and assistance that was available via the Safe Haven Baby Box twenty four hour hotline. And so there's more to this than just hey, we're going to punch holes in the sides of fire departments and insert these physical boxes. There's a fully orbed ministry going on here. Yeah, you know, I'm often quoted as saying that the baby box is not a good option. It's only a good option if it's the only option mom has left. And so we've referred over 500 women to crisis pregnancy centers where they just were in a situation that they just couldn't navigate through. And so, you know, our crisis pregnancy centers across this country do amazing jobs with women every single day. And so we referred so many women to them um, that have made different choices. We've also done seven adoptions, um, you know, where women called us wanting to surrender in one of our boxes, and we, we turned it into an open adoption plan. 
And then, of course, we've had babies in our boxes where mothers felt like this was the best option for them. And, and we're not going to judge them. We're not going to shame them. You know, I mean, if this is what they feel is best for them, then we're going to respect their decision to, to, to do what they feel is best for them, knowing that we've given them all of their options. Um, but, yeah, you know, the counseling is probably what we say is the workhorse of our organization. That hotline truly is the lifeline to safe haven baby boxes because that connects the mother with the resources. And, and if you don't have that connection, you're, you're not, these, these women are not ever going to get all of their options. You know, I mean, if I just put out there that, oh, yeah, there's a box at this fire station up the street, but never really gave any other options, people would think that, you know, that this was their only option if, if this was all I was advertising. And so we strive to make sure that every woman has all of her options before she makes the decision that is right for her. We're talking with Monica Kelsey. You can find lots of information at the website for Safe Haven Baby Boxes. It's shbb.org. All right, so the Safe Haven Baby Boxes are located, um, it seems to me, primarily at fire stations. They might be other places, but those are the ones that I have um, that I have seen. How many states have them? Um, what's the next state to get them, and how does that happen? Well, right now we're legal in nine states. Uh, out of those nine states, six states has the boxes. We've actually passed legislation this year, um, and we have not launched in these states yet. Um, but, you know, the, the process is, is, is we have to normally change the law in, in these states to allow for an anonymous surrender option. Um, because most of the laws say that, you know, a woman has to hand her child to a person. Well, of, of course, the box is not a person. It's a device, a safety device. Um, but we change the law in these states. And then, you know, the, the, this is the, the amazing part is the firehouses and the hospitals are calling us. We're not going looking for these locations. You know, I, I'm a firefighter and a medic out of Indiana. And I'll tell you, the runs that we go on people will never truly understand how much they break our hearts. And mm. if you ever find a dead baby in a dumpster, you, you don't get past that. And so the firehouses, I mean, this is, the abandonments have been happening for, for years and years and years. And some of these firefighters are in that situation where they have pulled a dead baby from a dumpster. Mm. And so they're calling us saying, I don't want to do this again. You know, what can we do to make sure that this does not happen? And, and so the, the locations call us. Now, we do have boxes at fire stations and hospitals. I'll tell you, 90% of our surrenders happen at, at fire stations simply because women trust firefighters. And, and hospitals are, are pretty well lit, pretty well, um, you know, there's a lot of people around hospitals where there's not in, in fire stations. And, you know, women get well, that anonymity. Fire, I, feel like fire, I feel like fire stations are like Dollar General. Like, they're everywhere. <laughs> Um, or they're, or they're like right. the post office, you know, and hospitals, I mean, you know, like you got to like map quest that, like it's not, or, you know, Google map that like, you know, a lot of people, they don't necessarily know where the hospital, the closest one even would be to where they are in this moment. So, um, yeah, I think that the fire station option is awesome. Um, so, um, there is model legislation for those of you who are listening and are like, I want to move on this. I want this to, uh, I want this law to change in my state. I want women to be able to anonymously surrender their baby if that's if that's the point to which they have arrived. I want that option to be available to them, and this is a safe way 
to do it. It is proven. Um, Safe Haven Baby Boxes, S-H-B-B dot O-R-G. If you've been looking for a way to activate your pro-life passions, this is a good one. Um, S-H-B-B dot O-R-G. You could look for model legislation and get the ball rolling in your own state. Um, I want to talk with you, Monica, about uh, why you are doing this. Like, it's one thing to be doing this. It's another thing for you to be doing this. So we're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to ask Monica to share part of her story, which is chronicled um, in her book, Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, the story of the baby box lady. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, Monica Kelsey's got a lot going on. Uh, firefighter, EMT. Um, she heads up the Safe Haven Baby Boxes organization at shbb.org. She's also an author. The book is Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, the story of the baby box lady. Hey, that's you. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> so this is, is like me. the story behind the story, right? So maybe, um, yeah. you know... I don't know, take us to Cape Town, South Africa, take you to your own story. Take us uh, take us into the story behind the story. Well, you know, for, for your listeners to truly understand the passion that comes from me, I have to take you back to August of 1972, you know, when a, when a young 17-year-old girl was brutally attacked and raped and left along the side of the road to die. And this, of course, was when abortion uh, was illegal in our country, even in the cases of rape and incest. And she pressed charges against the man who had raped her. He was arrested. He was charged. And then when her life was finally getting back to some normalcy, she she found out she was pregnant. And at the advice of her mom, she actually found herself at a back alley abortion facility in October of 1972. And while standing in front of the man that was going to take her child's life, this 17-year-old girl was strong enough to say, I just can't do this. And she left that facility and never looked back. Uh, she was hidden for the remainder of the pregnancy and then gave birth in April uh, of 1973 and abandoned her child two hours after that child was born. And that child was me. So my biological father is is a rapist and I don't even know my ethnicity, um, but I'm still a human being and I still have value and my life isn't worth less simply because of the way I was conceived. And, and I truly didn't deserve the death penalty for the crime of my biological father. And, you know, so today I stand on the front lines of this movement, making sure that no child is ever discarded like trash, that that no child is ever put in an unsafe place because a mother uh, is scared or shamed or feeling judged. And and so I, I, I boldly stand and, and make sure that women have a safe place to fall, you know. And, and so knowing my history and being a firefighter and a medic, I was in Cape Town, South Africa, and I seen what they called a baby safe in the side of a church. It was the only church in Cape Town that had a baby safe. And, and I happened to be speaking at that church that day. And so I was so intrigued by it. Uh, I wanted to know every, every detail of it. And on my way back from Cape Town, South Africa, on a Delta napkin, uh, I hand drew my vision of the baby box. And um, you know, this had never been done in America before. I was literally paving the way. I had no idea what I was doing. I had, you know, I was, I was like, well, you know, Christ, if you're going to give me this job, you better give me the answers that I need because this is going to be an uphill battle for me. And, 
and he truly has. He has literally paved the way for me to, to be able to change legislation, for people to trust me, for women to trust me, for fire stations to allow me to cut holes in the walls of their buildings. Um, you know, I mean, if Christ didn't have my back, I don't, I don't know any mayor of a city that would allow me to cut a hole in a $7.5 million firehouse, you know, um, but it, it did. And, and Christ was, was with me the entire time. And has it been challenging? Yes. Yes, it has. Um, but at the end of the day, we've had 12 babies in our boxes, a hundred babies surrendered to fire and, and medical personnel by our hotline, by our, our national hotline. And, I look back and I think, how blessed am I truly to have been abandoned, to have been given this job that Christ thought that I was, I was the strongest one to, to you know, to, to do this job. And so, um, so yeah. This is, um, it's such an incredible story of redemption and the way God um, still magnificently uses what um, one person meant for evil, and God has absolutely used it for good and is using it for good. Um, all right, so there are some questions rolling in. Um, what's the next state that really needs this? Where are most babies un- abandoned? So you can actually go. This is interesting because you can go to the Safe Haven Baby Box website, shbb.org, and under the Resources tab, you can actually see the list of states where um, babies are most frequently abandoned. And so it looks to me like Texas tops the list. And I think of Texas as a pro-life state. So Texas, it's time, it's time to, it's time to get up to speed on this, man. Yeah. Texas, California, New York, and Florida. Those are your main states. Uh, Well, Illinois as well. We just had a baby in an alleyway found uh, on Sunday morning. And Mm. this was, this was a full-term baby left in a dresser drawer of a old dresser that was being thrown away and it was trash pickup day. And mm. some woman just happened to be walking through the alleyway looking at this dresser because she redoes furniture and finds this abandoned baby in this dresser drawer. You know, thank God that she was looking for, looking for furniture that day to redo. Um, but yeah, those are the main states and we need to get in there. And, you know, going, taking this one step further on a pro-life side of things, I mean, we've been praying for the end of abortion for a very long time. And, and I think that, you know, for such a time as this, you know, that, that these boxes are needed because what we've done is we're, 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 we're chipping away at the laws. We're chipping away at, at making abortion not only unthinkable but illegal in this country. And, but what we haven't done is changed the culture. So we're still going to ha- have, you know, babies being um, uh, born out of wedlock to mothers that didn't want their child or, or didn't know what to do or, or whatever. And so, you know, if you take abortion out of the mix, which, again, we've been praying for for a very long time, we still have a culture that is still um, having children at a rapid rate, unmarried, you know, uh, fatherless homes. And so you take the abortion out. And these women are, are forced to carry these babies, which, again, we've been praying for this for a long time. But what are they going to do if they've told no one, if they've told exactly. no one that they're pregnant? And so these boxes are going to be pivotal in this country when we finally not only make it um, illegal, but, but unthinkable as well. All right. So I want you to go and find out um, about who is advocating for not only safe haven baby 
laws in your state, but who is on the forefront of advocating that women have an anonymous um, surrender option? It, it, we recognize that it's not a good option, but it's a really good option if you have no other options. It's the best option for the baby, and that's what we're talking about here, but it's also a really great option for the mom because she knows that she has surrendered her baby in a place that is safe where that baby will be cared for, um, not just immediately but in the long term, which leads us, I think, to the next question. What happens to the babies? Oh, wow. So the babies actually uh, go, they do go into foster care for about 30 days because we do allow moms 30 days to change their mind. You know, some of these women make this out of uh, out of desperation, and we don't want them to not have the option to come back if they choose. Um, but within 30 to 45 days, these babies are placed with their forever families. Um, and then, of course, the adoption process starts. But these babies, uh, all of them are adopted. None of them linger in foster care, which is kind of a misconception. Um, all of our babies have been adopted. And, um, and there's actually a waiting list for safe haven babies. Um, mm. So... You know, it, it, it truly is not only saving a child's life, but it's also making a family. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. Um, Monica, if you could inspire folks to do one thing today, what would it be? Oh, wow. If I could inspire anyone, look uh, look up. When things are tough, look up. You know, uh, Isaiah 6-8, remember, Isaiah was boldly asking Christ, what what shall I do? Who should, you know, Christ was asking, who shall I send? And I'm not a pastor. I always screw up the scripture when I start talking about it. I'm one of those people. But, you know, Isaiah boldly asked, what shall I do? You know, use me, Lord. And, and so if I could inspire anyone, it would be to, to, to lift up and say, what would you like me to do, Christ? Because if, if you have a plan for me, give me the tools and I will do it for you. And, and that's what I would, I would hope people would do is turn their focus to Christ because he will never abandon you. He always has your back. Amen. Um, I just love you already. Uh, my sister, uh, I just, I love what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your story. Uh, the book is Blessed to Have Been Abandoned, the story of the baby box lady. Monica Kelsey is both the person uh, and the author. She is also the executive director of Safe Haven Baby Boxes. You can find uh, more information at shbb.org. We'll be right back. All right, if you haven't done so already, uh, today is the day. Today's the day you have to take out the trash. Like, I don't know. I mean, I, I've been taking out trash like, like every day, it seems like, for 10 days. Like, every day. How do we generate so much trash? This time of year, we seem to, we seem to generate a lot of trash at our house. So, um, one of the things that uh, we do is, like, right, we bundle up the boxes that can be recycled um, or go to a different place than write just the trash. And um, I kind of started counting the cost of all those boxes and think about recycling and think about um, all of the things, the good things that God brought to us in those boxes and then through us delivered into the lives of others. And so I'm just wondering today, as you consider the cost of all those boxes and you consider all the good things that God has delivered into your life, is Faith Radio one of them? Is Mornings with Carmen one of the things that God has given you this year? You want to share with us a year-end gift? 
we'd love it. We'd really appreciate it. You do it by visiting us at MyFaithRadio.com or simply texting the word GIVE to 877-933-2484. Thanks for being here today. See you right back here tomorrow. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.